verses 1 through 6. Um, as we get into this, uh, I was just thinking about this a lot over the course of studying this passage. Um, you know, a lot of the Christian life, a lot of what we believe in, a lot of living out your faith as a believer in Christ, um, really centers around this, is that really you have to trust in the unseen. You have to trust in things that you cannot see with your eyes. I mean, this, this is what Paul talks about, is that, you know, faith is not by sight, right? And we walk by faith and not by sight. And so, so there's an idea that you have to trust the unseen. I just wrote down like three, but there's so many more you could really think about. Um, number one, uh, the most obvious, Jesus you may see the results of Jesus and, and what he has done. You may see the results of God and what he has done in the physical world that we live in. But you've never actually seen Jesus. you never beheld his face. Now, we sing about that in these songs. Like There will be a day that we get to say, see his face. But up until now, you have not seen his face. Yet, you are to believe in him. Trusting the unseen. Another one, um, the promises of God, that you can pull promises from Scripture. Many of them happen in your life today, but there are also many promises of God that have yet to be fulfilled. Uh, probably the most primary one is the one that we just sang about too, is that you will come and worship God face to face. He will come to put an end to all sin and suffering and death. That will happen, that is promised, but it has not yet been fulfilled. And then the third one I was thinking of is that God's directives or God's rules or, or, or God's... Um, things that he tells us on how we should live our lives. The ways that he tells us to live our lives, a lot of times don't see the rewards often here, but you'll reap the rewards later. So, so he tells you to live a certain way, and yet you may not see that it works out for your good immediately. And, and oftentimes it may actually make life a little bit more challenging. So, so there are a lot of things in the Christian life where it comes down to trusting the unseen. And I think what God wants for us and he wants for you, especially as we get into this chapter tonight, is, is he wants you to trust that he has your best interest at heart, despite all the other stuff in our world and despite everything else that you see that really wants to draw you in. He, he actually knows what's best and has the best thoughts in his mind for your life and how you should live it. Um, so when we get to this passage tonight, you're going to see what we're talking about. And it's saying, beware the trap is what we're going to call this. Beware the trap. I love this illustration. This is one that I've used so many times, but I think it's funny. I just got a cartoon image of it. But there's a, there's a concept called a monkey trap, okay? And so here's a crude way to trap a monkey um, and to get it stuck. You stick a banana into like a jar, okay? So you stick the banana, log, oblong banana, drop it straight into a jar. Then you put it out and let the monkey come and find it. The monkey then places his fist into the jar and grabs his hand around the banana. But then as he proceeds to try to pull the banana out of the jar, the lid is too tight around his closed fist. And therefore, every time he pulls on the banana, his hand is stuck. He's trapped. Now all he has to do is if he lets go of the banana, his hand can slip out. But because the monkey wants the banana so badly, he holds on to so tightly, he cannot get out of this trap. And so therefore, as you see in our little cartoon sketch where you have kind of silly monkey and then you got angry monkey who's in the pencil sketch, they are stuck in this trap because they will not let go of the banana. And the little monkey in the beginning, in the middle is just saying, just let go. Just let go of it. Let go of whatever that is that you're holding on to. And if you don't, it is a trap that will get you. I'm going to take you to 1 Timothy. You don't have to flip there, but... In, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul talks about a certain trap 
that is out there that really gets after us. And I would say, especially for us in our world and in our society, in our country, because we live in quite possibly, I haven't looked at the stats, so if you know your history better than I do, or you've got, you know, Wikipedia, you know, dialed up on your phone right now, and you're going to fact check me, I'm just going to say, we quite possibly live in the most wealthy nation of all time. Again, you can fact check it, you might debate me, save that for later, okay? But anyway, we live in a very wealthy time in a wealthy place. And you may be like, I don't have a lot of nice stuff. But compared to the rest of the world and comparative across history, you do. So wealth is there for us. We live in a very wealthy place. And this is what Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6. He says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is what I was talking about before, that that the Lord has such good things for you, and he has better plans for you, and he has your best interest at heart, and he doesn't want you to chase after money. He doesn't want you to fall into the temptation to try to be rich, because if you do, there are a lot of kinds of evil that can come from it. You can be pierced, and you can be hurt, and you will even potentially put yourself in a position where you could wander away from the faith. So he's placing this before you and telling you there's a trap out there when you pursue wealth. So be careful. And that's where we get to in James chapter 5 tonight. It's talking about wealthy people and rich people. And I'm going to read just the first three verses, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to do 4, 5, and 6 on the second half tonight. But I want to read the first three verses and explain a little bit of what he's saying here so you understand the context of James 5. So here's what he says. He says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and and will eat your flesh like fire. Now here's what you need to understand about James 5 and especially when he's talking about rich people here. When he starts out, come now, you rich people, he is making a statement addressing not Christians in the church that he's writing to, but he's talking to people who are not saved, who are in the world, and who are wealthy. The reason you know that is because everywhere else in James's letter, you'll notice that he says things, like he will in verse 7, which we'll get to next week, therefore, brothers and sisters... Or, brothers and sisters, come now. Let's reason together. He says brothers and sisters when he's addressing the other believers in Christ that he's writing this letter to. This is really important. Because then, you have to start to ask yourself the question. Okay, if he's not talking to Christians, and he's talking to people in the world who are not in the church, will they ever read this? Because again, this is a real letter written from a real person to a real group of believers in a real church. So he's writing about people in the world who are not in that church. So what's the point of this warning? Why in the world would he write to people who wouldn't even hear the words that he's written down to be read out loud? And the reason is, is because he is trying to help us as believers not look outside at all those who are out there gaining wealth and gaining all this other stuff. And he's trying to guard our hearts from a couple different things that can happen when we look at what they're doing out there with their wealth or how they're obtaining it. James is trying to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of pursuing wealth the way that the world is doing it. 
He wants us to be careful how we view those around us who are rich. And I would just tell you, it doesn't have to mean rich in monetary things. I know that's the context of this, but I think for you guys as well, I mean, a lot of you, your, your monetary value depends on what your parents are bringing home. I know some of you guys have jobs, okay? I get it. But you don't have enough where you're paying the mortgage or rent on top of a car payment, on top of a cell phone bill, on top of utilities, on top of all that. You're, you're dependent on mom and dad, okay? Let's just get that out there. You are a dependent. The government says so because your parents, when they do their taxes, they get to claim you as a dependent. So you are dependent on their wealth. So I also don't want you to just get just stuck. This does talk about money, but I don't want you to get stuck on just money is the idea that we're going after here. It could be people who are wealthy in other ways. You could talk about like wealth in relationships or wealth in, in their popularity or wealth in their skill set or wealth in their knowledge. I mean, like people who are successfully and just well off in a certain area of their life. And there are things in this that we have to be careful. We don't let our hearts wander when we see people who are well off in other areas. So it's not just rich in money, but it could be rich in something, I think is a good application point for us. But here are the things he wants us to be careful of. Number one, <clears throat> don't envy what these rich people or these people who are wealthy, what they have. Don't look outside at all those people who are gaining a lot of stuff, making a lot of money, or just have the nicest new shoes or clothes or video game set or a nice new car, or always have the nicest cell phone and Apple products the moment they come out. Like, don't look at what they have and just go, I want that. He's trying to guard our hearts from envy. Because if you look back in chapter 4, he talked about when you envy and cannot obtain it, it causes a lot of bad stuff. It ends up causing fights. It ends up causing you to wage war against others. It ends up making your spirit sick. So don't do that. If you need more kind of explanation on that, just go back and reread the beginning of James chapter 4 when he talks about covetousness and all the envy and the things and what it does to our souls. It makes us sick. It's a trap. So don't envy what people have. Don't envy what those rich have gained. Number two, don't aspire to be like them. Another way to put this, don't, don't just fix your life on trying to be wealthy and successful like they have been success, successful and wealthy. Don't just do every little thing that you do. Don't make decisions in your life. Don't, don't make everything about that end goal of being the best wealthy, the one who's got it all figured out, has gained a lot of stuff and has a lot of material stuff and just excess everywhere. Don't, don't fix your life on that. I'm not saying it's bad to become successful. What I am saying is don't fix your life on that. Don't aspire to make that your end goal. You know, like, like with, with the passage that Alex did last week, you know, a lot of that talking about making plans for the future, a lot of that is that same concept of this monkey trap, right? Like you have these dreams for your future and you hold on to them so tightly. Like you think like it's all going to matter if you get into this school or it's all going to matter if you get to be with this person or it's all going to matter when you get to get out of that house or get to go here and you hold on to that dream so tightly, and yet what is going to end up happening to you is it's going to kill you because you won't let go of it. Last, last week's passage is not about not making plans. It's about holding your plans so loosely and submitting them to Christ that you live free of being bound to whatever it is that you want. You want to be free of that. You don't want that to strap you down. So what he's saying is don't aspire to fix your life on everything that they have just to make yourself like them. Don't do that. Live free of that expectation to be like the wealthy. 
The last one is don't get bitter about what you don't have. And this is what he's also trying to be careful telling. He's saying to the people who are reading this, he's giving a warning. It's like a prophetic warning to rich people who will not read the letter, but he's telling the Christians who will read the letter, this is the end of them. Listen to their end. Misery is coming upon them. Their wealth is rotted. Their clothes are moth-eaten. Their gold and silver corroded. And when they get to the very end, it will stand against them as a witness. This is not good stuff. But don't get bitter about what you don't have. Don't look at everything else. Oh, man, they always get it. Like, I follow Christ. I do the right thing. But they always get everything they want. I pray for stuff, and God says no or doesn't answer that prayer. These people don't even pray, and they just roll out of bed, and stuff falls in their lap. That's not fair. I'm tired of this. If you start to feel that way or if you catch yourself saying things like that, that is a road that leads you to bitterness. And if you were in our church a couple of weeks or a couple months ago, Pastor Rob in Hebrews did a great job talking about the root of bitterness, what it will do. Again, it's a trap, and it will spoil, it will rot the core of who you are. And it's hard to dig that bitter root out. It's painful. So he's warning us, do not allow the ways that you view the rich to change your life. Don't envy them, don't aspire to be like them, don't get bitter about what you don't have. That's, that's kind of the point of what he's writing this to a group of people, again, who he's not even addressing. He's addressing people who won't even read it, but the people who are reading it are being told, don't envy that, don't chase after that, don't get bitter about what you don't have. Now let's pick it up in the second half of verse 3, and we'll end out to verse 6. He goes on to say this, he says, now you have stored up treasure, again, he's still talking to the rich people, you have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Man, he is giving a clear indication of what rich people do. And he does it by just, there's four things that they do. And you can see it basically with the words, you have. Every time he starts off by saying, you have, you have. He's addressing what rich people do. And I think this is where, again, as people who are reading this, he's not addressing you, but it's a great way to test your heart. Because again, we live in a very wealthy place. I know that inflation's crazy. I know gas prices are crazy too, believe me. We have an SUV that eats gas for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then we go back to the pump, and my wallet hurts. I get it. I know times are not easy, but again, the wealth that we have is pretty great. And so what we need to be careful of is analyzing our hearts and making sure that we don't fall into being what these rich people do. We don't want to fall into it. And there's four things that he says, you have done something. Here's the first one, verse, the end of verse 3. He says, you have stored up treasure in the last days. Okay, so, so what have they done here? Rather than sharing with others, rather than giving to people, they have gathered the abundance of stuff with their wealth, and they have gathered all these possessions, and they've gotten way more than they need, and they put it into storehouses or, or modern-day closets or in modern-day storage facilities that are popping up everywhere. I, I promise you, every time I drive around the city, like I, I drive up and land gets cleared, and I get all excited because I'm like, ooh, what's the new thing that's going to come here? 
Like, I, I don't know if you guys have heard the rumors we might get a Five Guys in Kernersville. Is that true? It is? I hope. It, again, it's still a rumor. It, where Wendy's used to, it, it's kind of gone now on Main Street. I kind of hope that happens. I love their fries. But anyway, I get excited about anytime I see like a flattened land. Actually, it's like one of my icebreaker questions for people is, Alex and I talk about this all the time. If you could bring one thing to your town that doesn't exist here, like a restaurant, what would it be? And Alex and I have debates about this all the time. But anytime I see flattened land, I get excited. I'm like, ooh, what's the new exciting thing coming? And then I look at the little sign, you know, like future home of something. And you're like, ooh, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. What is it going to be? What is it going to be? Storage facility. Super excited about another storage facility. Really love it. Like, love that we have a building with little garages for more junk. Like, that, that's what we're building everywhere around our town. Love it. It's great. This is excess, okay? This is what these rich people have done. They have stored up their treasure. While other people have needs, they see the needs and they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Let's put it in our storage facilities. Let it collect dust. We don't even use it. We don't even know what it is. We don't even know if we have all the parts to it. Could they use it? Probably, but it's my stuff. I don't want to share it. This is a habit of the rich. The rich that James is warning, they store up treasure. They do not share. They have excess. They have an abundance. They don't share with those who are in need. They've been blessed with so much, and yet they could care less about the needs of others around them. Back in 1 Timothy 6, Paul said this to a young pastor, Timothy as he's telling him how to deal with people in his church, he says, instruct the rich to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. See, the, the rich in James 5, they store up their treasure. They hold on to it, and they don't let anybody see it. Some of their treasure never saw the light of day because they just held on to it themselves. Here's the second thing. Verse 4 you have withheld pay from workers. Workers who mowed your field. And what, what he's talking about here is that what they would understand, that it's not like grass clipping or grass cutting, like mowing as we think of it. This is essentially like going out into the wheat fields and tearing up the wheat, mowing it down, and then harvesting the wheat, which was very profitable and it was a very valuable thing to do. And a lot of times what would happen in these times is that you would get a day laborer, so you would hire a guy for a day, you would agree on a day's wage. You would send them out into your field. They would collect the wheat. They would mow it for you. And then they would bring in the harvest. Okay? That's, that's what he's describing. That's the situation. This would have been very uh, common sense to the people reading this. Okay? But what the rich people have done is that they have withheld pay from their workers. They would tell them. They would like bring them in. Hey, hey, come, come and work on my field. Come and mow down the wheat for me and I'll give you a day's wage. Those people work through the hot sun all day. They gather in all the wheat, and then they come up. They say, okay, sir, well, you know, I'm ready for my, you know, denarii. We're ready for my day's wage. And the guy would go, ha, nah, see ya. Thanks for nothing. And wouldn't pay him. Now, all of you guys are like, well, that's not fair. It, absolutely, it's not fair. But the problem was is that those type of day laborers had no rights. They wouldn't be able to go against somebody who was wealthy and who had status in the society and bring a charge against them. It wouldn't hold up in court. In fact, it would be laughed. So there was no laws holding these people accountable. So the rich could just basically go, hey, I make a promise that you work for me and I'll give you a day's wage. But they could cheat them out of what they had promised and there would be no punishment for them. This is something that the wealthy do. They act 
without punishment. They act without consequence. I mean, in modern times, you see this all the time, right? I mean, this is, it is kind of classic, and a lot of, like, TV shows do this, but how often does a rich, famous person in our society do something, break a law, and they get a slap on the wrist? And then somebody normal does the same exact crime and sees jail time, right? I mean, the difference is, is the wealthy person or the status person usually has a lot of money to pay for really high-powered lawyers who make a bunch of excuses who get them out of jail time, whereas normal people just don't have that kind of capital or that type of power to do that. You see it in our time. It's no different, but in this time, the same thing is happening. The wealthy knew they would not be punished. They knew they would not get caught, and so what do they do? They cheat people out of money. So what? What are you going to do to me? You're a day laborer. I own this vineyard. I own this field. You can't touch me. Who's going to bring a charge against me? I'm wealthy. I got status. I got power, man. Get out of here. This is what the rich do. But it made me think of this because the way that they are acting according to what James is explaining is they act without the threat of a consequence. And so my question is, is if you knew that you would not be punished if the punishments were off the table for you, would you just do whatever you wanted to do? Would you do the right thing still? Or would you start to cut corners? Would you lie, cheat, steal? Would you do whatever it took because you knew that there were no consequences for your behaviors? Would you still live with integrity? I'll make it like a student example. If you were told, you, or you just knew, you would not be punished for cheating on the next test that you take. Would you cheat? I mean, you're not going to get punished, right? I mean, the teacher's going to still give me an A as long as the answers are right, and I see that person's, I'm, why not? Would you do it? Some of you guys chuckle and said yes out loud. Hey, if that's a joke, or if that's seriously, you know, there's truth in jokes, just saying, just be careful. But that's the mindset of somebody who's wealthy and rich, and privileged in a lot of ways. They think that the rules don't apply to them, and so they can act without consequences. That's something that the rich do. Verse 5, he says, you have lived luxuriously. These people have accumulated a lot of wealth, and a lot of goods, and a lot of stuff, and they are so focused on their earthly comforts living luxuriously. They, they live the finest of fine things. They eat the finest foods. They have the finest clothing. They barely have to live a lift a finger. They don't have to work, sweat. They live luxuriously. They try to live their most comfortable, best experience they can now. The problem with that is that they are focused on such earthly things that have no lasting value and they have lost sight of eternal things. And that's the danger of living luxuriously. I mean, we, we all watch these shows, right? You watch these, you know, they don't do, um, this is dating me a lot now um, and how old I am, but they don't do, like, MTV Cribs anymore. Like, they used to do that show where they would, a celebrity would invite a camera crew to their house, and they would go in, and, like, the biggest part of that whole show was, like, what's in the celebrity's refrigerator? And it was, like, wait for it. They're going to open this, like, stainless steel, massive sub-zero brand fridge. And they're going to open it up. And you're going to see what is in their fridge in, in cribs. And I remember as a teenager, like, that was, like, such a big moment. It was, like, ooh, what's in their fridge? And then you see, like, you know, they've got, like, 17 cars. You know, one of them that they drive. And one of them is, like, their, you know, March vehicle that they just drive in March. 
And then they've got a bowling alley. They've got multiple pools. They've got all the stuff. You know, it's crazy. They're just living luxury. And it looks like fun. It looks like fun. But all that stuff is temporary. And again, the trap and the allure of wealth will tell you that is so fun. You should chase that. Go get it. It'll make your life so much better. But what happens when it doesn't? What happens when your stuff breaks and you have to continue spending money to fix it and upkeep it? What happens when your money starts to run out so you've got to work ten times as hard to keep up that lifestyle that you thought you were going to keep and then all of a sudden you just find yourself this luxury that you were living is not comfortable at all. This is something that the wealthy do. They try to just to live luxuriously. Here's the last one. He says, you have condemned the righteous. Essentially, what the rich tend to do is they take advantage of people who are doing the right thing. They exploit people who are living for Christ. Here's, here's how I see that in a lot of ways. You, you can look at, um, you know, the money laws. You can look at all that. But, but I'm going to talk about for a second, like, popularity-wise. Like, people who are wealthy in terms of their social capital and have a lot of, um, have a lot of street cred or thought well of by their peers— I see a lot of this. This is people who are wealthy in that area of their life, and they condemn people who are doing the right thing. They, they exploit or they detract from people who are living for Christ. And, and I, I just, be, be so careful with, with that. I mean, it's okay to be well-liked by your peers. I'm not saying that you should be hated. I'm not saying that you should be a jerk. I'm not saying that you should be like this lowly person who nobody thinks deserves the time of day. I'm not saying you should strive to be that. What I'm saying is that if you tend to be a very popular person, don't let it come at the expense of other people who are doing the right thing. Don't let your popularity be driven by, by pushing down people who are trying to live godly lifestyles that other people who are quote-unquote popular think are weird. Don't do it. Don't try and gain your popularity by somebody else's godliness. That's something that the rich will do. Now I want to take you to one last passage. And it's a passage that I go back to frequently. And you're going to see what Jesus has to say about some of these things. If you, ha- if you have your Bibles with you, just you can look at Luke chapter 12. I have the verses on the screen. But, but in Luke 12, Jesus is talking <clears throat> about the, the danger of possessions. And, and, and you're going to see, he gives this parable about a rich young fool. And you're going to see how the rich young fool fails two out of the four tests that we just talked about from James 5. You're going to see that his heart is sick and has fallen into the trap that James is trying to warn us about. And I think you can glean a couple of amazing key points that God wants for us that Jesus is trying to get us to see out of this parable. I'm going to start in verse 15 of Luke chapter 12. It says this. Jesus said to them, take care and be be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. Continuing on in the next verse, he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So this is the one who lays up treasure for himself 
and is not rich toward God. There's a couple key things that Jesus says in here. I'm just going to pull out three. You can say, I can spend so much more time, and I've preached so many different messages on this passage before because I think it's such a great passage. You catch this guy in the parable. He's literally telling himself. He's preaching to himself when he tells his soul just to be happy with all the goods, eat, drink, and relax, essentially. I mean, how many times have we told ourselves that to cope with stress, right? There's so much we could go into this. This is a whole other topic I don't have time for. But listen to one of the things that Jesus says. At the beginning of the parable, he says something really key. He says, one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. This is such, if you think about this, it's such a freeing thought. Your life, your value is not measured by how much stuff you have. That is good news. Because I think so many times people think this way. I matter or I have value when I have a lot of blank. Like, I matter and I have a lot of value when I have a lot of friends, when I'm wealthy in that regard. I matter or I have value when my grades are killer, straight A's, when I'm wealthy in terms of my success in the classroom. I matter or I have value when I am the best player on my particular sports team, I'm wealthy in that skill set. I matter or I have value when I have a relationship with a guy or girl that is going very well and that's successful. That is a trap. And, and, and that is such a trap that if you feel that your value or your worth or the fact that you matter to the world around you or to God himself is only defined by when you have a lot of something, that is really fearful. Because what happens when that stuff is gone? When that's gone, do you lose your value as a person? No, you don't. Jesus says it. Your life is not wrapped up in the abundance of your possessions. It's not wrapped up in the abundance of your friendships. It's not wrapped up in the abundance of your skill. It's not wrapped up in the abundance of your relationships. It's so much better than that, that your identity as a Christian, if you are a believer in Christ, is not tied to how much you have. Because if you have Christ, you have everything. And that matters. That's your value. You have more value when you have him. Not when you have a lot of stuff. Not when you're well off. Not when your health is in perfect order. You matter and have value when you are with him. That's such a freeing thought that your life is not consistent, does not consist of the abundance of what you own or possess at the given moment. Because again, all those things can be taken away just like that. Your value and your worth is measured by if you are in Christ. And guess what? That cannot be taken from you ever. Here's the second one. The rich fool fails the test found in James 5. Listen to verse 18. He kept an abundance for himself, right? He, he literally went to the storehouses and said, I will fill up my storehouses with more stuff. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and I will store all my grain and all my goods. He lived luxuriously. Verse 19. Oh, self, soul, eat, drink, be merry, relax, enjoy life. It's going to be great. He lived luxuriously. This rich fool failed those tests that James tried to free us from. And the last thing that Jesus says is at the end of that parable, you don't want to be rich in all those things, but you want to be rich toward God. 
So the question becomes, the last question of the night, what does God value then? Like, like if I want to be rich in God's sight, what does he value? What does God see as the most important thing? Hebrews 11.6 gives you a clue. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It starts with your belief in him, your trust in him. God desires and values holiness in your life. That only comes first if you trust and believe in him. He values those things. Without it, you cannot please him. Without it, you cannot be rich in his sight. Without Christ, we are in poverty in his sight. But with Christ, he took our poverty and gave us his wealth. He took on our poverty and made us rich in him. That's how we can be rich in the sight of God. That's how we can be valued in terms of God's economy. It's all about your relationship with him. But the pursuit of wealth is a trap that will try to short-circuit your pursuit of him. The pursuit of wealth and trying to be, trying to own more stuff to make your life more comfortable will disrupt the opportunity you have. Timothy says it, it, it's not that things are bad, it's the love of those things that is the cause and the root of so much evil in our lives. Take that four-step test. See if you fall into the trap of being like a rich person that James talks about in James 5. If you don't, continue to ask God to guard your heart against enviness, and envy, envy, aspiring to be rich, or bitterness. So that you can know that what you have in Christ is so much more valuable than the stuff that this world's trying to give you. And to chase after all the other things that are just going to burn, be corroded, be spoiled, be stolen, be eaten by bugs. Yeah, it's not worth it. It's not worth chasing after. If your value is not found in those things. Your value is found in so much more if you're in Christ. And I tell you, that is the most freeing thing I can tell you this night, is that your value and your personhood, and you matter, not because of the stuff you have, but because of the Savior that you have, if your Savior is Christ. Let's pray. I'll give you guys a second, just to, take like 30, 30 or 45 seconds, just to speak with the Lord in the quiet of your heart. Just pray to him. Ask him just to search you out. And maybe just even ask him to, to guard your heart, to continue to keep you out of this trap of, of pursuing stuff. It, it is so subtle. And we need God's protection um, to keep our hearts from wandering down that road.